We are going to um, be in the book of Titus. I've got to admit that as I approached the uh, teaching of the book of Titus, uh, my initial thought was uh, preach the whole book in one message. That was initially my thought. Initially. Then I thought, okay, preach the book in two messages. Okay. And then I got mired in verse 1. And um, so I suspect that I'll take us three weeks, but um, whatever the Lord has for us. So if you could turn to Titus chapter 1, let's pray one more time for the Word of God, and then uh, we will jump right in. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you speak, and that you speak to us through your Word. We know this, that it is all about the person of Christ. And my, my prayer for us this morning, as we look into your word, that what we would glean, if we glean nothing else from this morning, is that the glorious prize of all that you are is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That is my prayer this morning. So Lord, have your way in your word May it be clear to us. May I speak it clearly. Those things that are not of you, but are of me, please help us to not uh, grasp those things. But let us glean everything that is by your spirit and from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, the, the book of Titus is often uh, talked about as a, as a leadership book or model for um, what leadership is, uh, a model for eldership, and it is that. Um, it is that and more, uh, so much more. It's, it, is, it is a good model for faith and practice. It is a good model for godliness as we share that with one another. It is, to me, it is such a special book about unity, that unity is bred from the idea of good, godly leadership. But, but it goes even further than that to me. And um, so what I hope to do over the course of a couple of weeks here is show that while it is a book about leadership, it's a book about servanthood. It's, it's a book about seeing the gem of all of the doctrine of God in the person of Christ. And that that person of Christ gives us all that we need for faith, for practice, for understanding. It gives us all that we need is found in the person of Christ. And it demands a lot. That was the thing that I can't tell this week is that the word of God Titus, this, it demands a lot. And how is it possible? How is it possible for us what the Word of God demands of us? And we will see that Paul unfolds this clearly, that it is by His grace that we can do what it is that the gospel demands of us. 
So I'm going to read all of chapter 1, and then we will jump in there. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. J.R. Miller writes, There's a beauty of soul which makes the plainest face radiant, and the homeliest features lovely, which shines like a star in this world of sin. It is for this beauty that we are taught to pray. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. It is not the beauty which fades when sickness smites the body, or which is lost in withering touch of years, or which blanches when death's pallor overspreads the features. But this is the beauty which grows lovelier in pain, or suffering, which shines out in sorrow like a star in the night, which transfigures the wrinkled and faded features of old age, and which bursts out in death into the full likeness of Christ. You see, what I want us to see is that how Paul grabs a hold of his identity is that the full likeness of Christ is such a treasure, such a treasure to him, that while he admonishes Titus later, we'll see, to teach sound doctrine, is not for the sake of sound doctrine that he tells him to teach it. He tells him to teach sound doctrine for the sake of the faith of God's elect, right? Their knowledge of the truth and that which accords with godliness. It's a full orbed understanding of, of the sound doctrine. And, and Paul finds that it has its essence and its fullness in the person of Christ. 
So today, all I really long to do is exalt Jesus. I'm going to talk a lot about him. I'm going to talk a lot about the gem of salvation, the gem for us, that our heart's affections might turn in the right direction. Well, so Titus here is a letter, and it's written to a trusted partner in the gospel. See, this trusted partner in the gospel that Paul knew that when things were tough, Titus could be trusted. He asked, there's not a lot about Titus in the book of Acts, but there's a little bit. And we notice that when Paul had to deliver, remember the letter he had to deliver to the Jerusalem council, who did he send? Titus. A man who was after his own heart, who was submitted to Paul as his leader because he understood that Paul was submitted to Christ. See, he could trust that Titus was the man for the job. And he recognizes here is a tough situation in Crete. The best man for the job is the man who I know. I know his, his heart. I know his passion for Christ. I know his understanding of the knowledge of the truth. And it has fleshed itself out in godly living. See, this is why Titus was chosen. So, what we'll see in this letter is that under the Lordship of Jesus, with one faith and with one purpose, we are all called to submit to one another and to those appointed over us. We, all, we are also meant to lead and live within the sphere of influence that our God has given us. We're going to see more of that in chapter 2 than in chapter 1, but I'm giving us kind of an overview of where we are going to go with this. So you will notice that over the next few weeks that I will repeat the purpose of this letter multiple times from chapter 1, verse 1, which is, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In other words, full-orbed living the gospel is from a right heart and a right mind leading us to the right practice of gospel living. It's, it's a fullness. And then also I will repeat again and again from chapter 2, another thing that sort of ties the whole book together is from verses 10 and 11 in chapter 2. And I'll read those to you so that we, we get some grounding in this. But showing all good faith, so that everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It is the why and the how of what it is that is being commanded of us here. So, as I prayed and prepared, I couldn't help but think that from this book, to ask myself some questions, uh, and I want to ask them of you, sort of rhetorically, to have you think about these things. But what is the demand of the gospel? What is the demand? Well, certainly, if you've been in fellowship here any time, and you've heard it from me, and you've probably heard it from others, it is to repent and believe. Well, that is certainly true. And at a minimum, it's what the scripture tells us is necessary for salvation. But I want to ask us today, what does the gospel demand on day two? 
What does the gospel demand on day 10,210? What does the gospel demand of our relationships within the church? Our relationships outside the church? What does the gospel, gospel demand of our practical daily lives? What are the implications of our heart's affections, our thoughts, our understanding, and our actions toward our families, toward our church members, for the watching world, for our ongoing relationship with God? If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, Jesus sums up the command of the gospel for every day that we draw breath by his grace. In Luke 10, 25, we see a lawyer. It begins here. And a, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as, you, as yourself. So as I read this passage, you may think, what does this have to do with the text in Titus you just read? I'm hoping that if you'll bear with me for a little bit, um, I hope that in God's strength we're going to get there. Um, in this text, in Luke, the response of the lawyer is to find the loophole by asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? The better question here would have been from him is not what must I do, but who must I be in order that I might do? Or how might I do that which is worthy of the inheritance? Because with me, it is impossible. Well, the simple answer is by grace through faith. And in this letter, Paul will expound on this through, through the book of Titus. And it is in such a rich, rich way. So back to Titus. I want to read 1 through 5. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true, true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put re what remained into order. I'm going to stop there. You see, the letter opens with identity and purpose. Given the situation in Crete, if I were to write a letter to somebody who I was assigning this job, this is where you're going to go, this is what the ministry is going to look like there, I probably would not have began here. I probably would have began with, hey, you're up against it. You are seriously up against some tough stuff. I need to tell you right away, this is what you're going to see. And then I'm going to tell you maybe some wise things to think about as you do it. I would have begun right away to let Titus know what the situation was. 
He says, here, you're up against these circumstances. They're false teachers in Crete. And you don't even want me to get started on what are the natural affections of the Cretans. You don't even want me to tell you what those people are like. But Paul begins the letter with what I think is necessary in any circumstance that we're going to find ourselves in ministry. And this is what the text teaches us, I believe. that It teaches us that we need right-hearted, right-minded leadership that is going to guide the ministry in right practice. So look at Paul, how he identifies himself in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God. He begins with Paul, a servant of God. He recognizes the master. The master is most important. Paul, a servant of God, he declares that all that I am, putting words into his mouth, because these are the words as it penetrates my heart as I think about who my God is and who my Jesus is. But the heart of what I think he would declare to us is that all that I am comes from an overwhelming joy and satisfaction in the gem of my salvation. And I find that gem in the person of Jesus Christ. If you would, turn with me to Philippians 3, 3 through 11. We're going to walk through Paul's affections toward his Savior. In Philippians 3, beginning in verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen? An affection for Christ as the gem of who I am. So as he begins this letter, he says, Paul, a servant of God, because I am so in love with the master. I am so in love with the master. And secondly, as we look at verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, my identity, he says, my purpose is defined by who I am and who sent me. I'm underneath Christ. And he says, this here will define the purpose of what I, it is that I'm trying to communicate to you, Titus. I'm trying to communicate to you the gem of who I am in Christ and because of him. And that this is his mission. This is what God has demanded of me. 
And this is what I'm going to ask of you. And this, not only this, not only am I going to ask you this of you, Titus, but when you appoint elders, you ask that of them. And elders, when you meet with mothers and fathers, and when you meet with grandparents, ask that of them too. Because the gospel demands that. It demands our all, he would say. And then, you see, as Christ sends him out for ministry, then as he finishes up this verse for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, it gives him a longing for the people of God to do and to be those who love our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. See, Paul here as a leader is first a servant of God and then a servant of others. And I want us to look again for just a moment at chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 2, verse 10, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I can't on the word adorn. What does it mean to adorn something? It's to take what is beautiful already and adorn it with more beauty, to magnify its beauty. You see, that's Paul's aim. That's the aim that he wants to adorn the doctrine of God. And, and, and to adorn that means to find that the gem is all tied into the person of Jesus Christ. He would magnify that gem. Well, Paul's authority as leader came from his right-hearted serving of his master, Christ Jesus, the gem of his salvation. And it found its manifestation through the preaching of the word of God in which he had been entrusted and commanded by God the Father. You see, in this chunk of scripture, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Now, we want to look at verse 5 as he gives this charge to Titus. The reason why I spent so much time on that is that as if you take verse 5 and you, and you chunk it in, in two sections, I used to read this just as one thought. But I really believe that there's two thoughts in this verse. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you put my what that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Two things: first, that you might put what remained into order. So, what remained? What was left? I believe that we'll see from the text that what was left is that these Cretans. These new Christians had faith, but that their knowledge of the truth was limited or was falsely taught, and therefore it didn't manifest itself in a godly life, in godly living. 
So he says, put what remains empty, what was not there, and bring that in. Bring that this fullness that God demands through the gospel is for the sake of their faith, right-hearted belief, and their knowledge of the truth, right doctrine, which accords then with godly living, right practice. It's all tied together, right heart, right mind, right practice, tied together, he would say in this passage. Well, as we get to verse 6 through 8, we're going to see what it is that the qualified leader has in heart, in mind, and in action. What it is that a godly leader is called to do. Verse 6, he says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as top, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul would say here, look for the man who leads his home. Look for the man who leads the people that he has been granted in this life from a right heart. An overseer must also be of the right mind, you see, that are born from actions and lives that are consistent with right affections, you see. And then in verse 8, he says, check his practices. What does the man practice? First, test that is he a good steward of that which God gave him already? Does he have the right heart and the right mind of Christ? Does he keep his mind protected? And then he says, what are the things that this man of God, who you're choosing to lead, what does he practice? You see, what he practices is hospitality. He loves good. He's self-controlled. He's upright. He's holy. He's disciplined. See? So he says here, look and see. Check his practices. In other words, does his life reflect that he too, he too adorns the beauty of the Savior? Does his life add adornment and beauty to the person of Christ? And does he do this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness? And lastly, in verse 9, does he hold firm the word of God? as the authority for right-hearted, right-minded, right-practice? Those are the questions that he has for the leader. Now we are going to get into the problem. We, we have the solution. It needs right-hearted, right-minded leadership, right? It needs, a, it needs a man who sees Christ as the gem of creation, the gem of all of God's doctrine is found in the person of Christ. We need a man who has a heart like that. We have a man who is surrendered to the word of God. And not only does he have the right heart and the right mind, but he takes that right-hearted, right-mindedness and he puts it into practical practice so that his heart, mind, and action are consistent with that which the Savior has called him to do. That's a big job, right? I, I mean, that's a big job. 
And I'm asking that of you. I'm asking it of me. It's a big job. How do we do it? Well, we'll get there. How do we do it? Yes. So, there's trouble. There's trouble. So, let's read 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Here's what you're against. So from the outside, there's false teachers who not for the sake of the faith, but for the sake of themselves, for the sake of themselves are teaching as doctrine that which is devoid of the truth, and not only that, there are some who may have the right doctrine, but their practices do not accord with godliness. Even tougher, he would say to Titus, the reputation of the Cretans precedes them. The reason, Titus, you must put things into order is that by nature, these new Christians are living not according to Christ, but they're living according to their culture. This is why leadership in the church, in our church, in all churches, is very, very important. And I thought about this this weekend. This, this may be tough to hear, but I, I believe it to be true. We tend to be American Christians and not Christian Americans. There's a subtle difference. But it's not so subtle in the way that we flesh out what the Word of God is. See, that is that we're living according to the culture, even in the church. And we are sometimes compartmentalizing our faith. Church is how I act and behave. One day, maybe. And the rest of the week, I'm an American. And when I come to church, my American sensibilities are not met. So when my American sensibilities are not met, then I pester the pastor and the elders. But how come you don't do this? How come my needs are not being met? Well, notice here in Crete how he says one of the prophets of their own, one of their own people talking about them, themselves says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. If Paul were writing to Titus, to minister to the church in America, what might the prophets of our own say about us? I have a couple of thoughts. I had a lot of them. I'm only going to give you three because he, he only gave three, so I'm going to give you three. Selfish, comfort-seeking consumers. Mike Lucan wrote this. We are a culture of Christ followers who, who pay far too much attention to whether or not our needs are being satisfied. And we become a culture of leaders who spend far too much time orienting our ministries around the ever-changing preferences of our people. As we mature in Christ, 
Might the goal be to develop a gut-level instinct to give less attention to what we are not getting from our church? Perhaps a step on the way to growing more Christ-centered is to accept our dissatisfactions instead of assuming that they have to be resolved. Churches that spend too much time alleviating their people's dissatisfactions may be nurturing a self-absorbed attitude of the heart that needs to be nailed to the cross. To authentically lead people into deeper apprenticeship with Jesus, we must graciously and rigorously confront the raging selfishness that is alive and well in all of us. I ask, do we see Christ as the gem of God? Do we live for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness? If not, you might ask how. Chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that it is by, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it follows in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. How? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John Piper writes, So we are to love God with our passions, hungers, perceptions, and thoughts. But we are also to love Him with how we talk, and what we do with our hands, and how we utilize our talents, and how we react to challenges. Our entire being is to display that we love God. There needs to be an authentic love for God that starts with God-oriented affections, desires, and thoughts that permeates our speaking and behavior, and then influences the way we spend our money and how we dress and drive and our forms of entertainment. Whether we're eating or singing, jogging or blogging, texting or drawing, love for Yahweh, the one triune God, is to be in action and seen. You see, Jesus is the gem of God. And just like the lawyer knew, we don't have it in us. We don't have it in us to meet the demands of God's holy law. Even when it's boiled down to just two. Right? We read the whole of Scripture and see that there's a lot of laws in there. We think this is the law of God. And Jesus boils it down to two. And even when Jesus boils it down to two, there should be a sinking feeling in your own heart, there is in mine, that I don't have it within me to accomplish even the simple two laws of God that fulfill everything. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Two Simple loss. Two things that looking in the mirror and saying, do I? No. Can I? No. Why not? One, the affections of my heart are for myself. Instead of the affections of my heart being for the gem of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for me. There may be a reason why over and over again I take us back to the cross of Christ and what he's done. That may be the reason. Not, not necessarily for you and you alone. It's because I need to go back there. 
I need to go back there and remember the price that was paid for me. I need to go back there and remember how God poured out all of his wrath on Christ that he also would then pour out all of his love to me in one self-same action, that he would do it all at once. That is the gem. And then he says, I give you two simple things. Love me. Love me with everything you've got. And for the sake of others' faith, love them too. I can't. It's impossible. And I can't help but think to close with 2 Corinthians 5.21 because this is the gem. This is the gem I want you to hang on to. This is, this is it. This is the glorious gem of everything. There's nothing more precious. Nothing on earth more precious. No person, no job, no money, nothing. More precious than this one thing. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gem of all that the word of God teaches. It is the gem that for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can we celebrate that? Should we be full of joy and love then for our Savior, right? That it is our great, great treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would convince us of the gem of salvation that is found in the person of Christ. The gem of his atoning work for us. The gem that, when we didn't deserve it, when we hated God, when we were opposed to you, the sin of the wrath, that my sin, that, that deserved your wrath, you gave to him instead. That you might pour out your love and your mercy and your compassion on me. I thank you, Lord, that for this day, your grace is sufficient for me. I praise that today I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that you're moving me forward. You're moving me forward. You're moving us forward. In the word of God. Sound doctrine. For the sake of faith. Our knowledge of the truth. And that which accords with godliness. We are growing day by day in godliness. Lord I pray. And it is only by your grace. And by your mercy that we can do so. Praise you Lord. And thank you in Jesus precious name. Amen.